We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. And away we go, episode 137 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, September 3rd, 2021, the day on which a loaded sports weekend, a loaded sports Labor Day weekend begins in the Washington, D.C. area. Virginia Tech hosting number 10, North Carolina, Friday evening at 6, as yes, college football is upon us. Of course, we've already had a bunch of games played in this college football season, but it is this show, this installment of the pod, that I am labeling as my college football preview show, as I have not one, but two special guests, and I have the first ever installment of Goldilocks on the Al Goldie podcast. You've heard of Goldilocks and the Three Bears? I do Goldilocks. My college football picks for Maryland, Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia, although I'm not picking the Virginia game for this weekend because lines for the game are not readily available. But the two special guests, Jeff Ehrman, the founder and publisher of InsideMDSports.com, will go in-depth on Maryland football. And Mike Barber, ACC insider for Richmond.com, will go in-depth on Virginia Tech and Virginia football. And I have to admit something to you. So so my one-year-old daughter was crying like crazy while I was doing the interview with Mike Barber. Uh, Dada was home alone with the two kids, and I had to not be right in front of her during the, like, 15 minutes that I taped the interview. But what's amazing is that I taped the interview in my basement bunker, in my uber-expensive studio in which pillows and blankets serve as soundproofing. She was upstairs in the living room with my son, And the recording still picked up her crying. Now, you have to listen closely to the interview with Barbara. But if you listen closely, you hear her crying. I couldn't get over that while I was formatting the interview for the podcast. Uh, Apparently, I have Mariah Carey 
in terms of pipes. Uh, but anyway, lots of college football talk on the show. This is a D.C. area sports show that actually talks local college football. And yes, I know Blacksburg, Virginia and Charlottesville, Virginia are hours away from D.C., but Virginia Tech and Virginia have a lot of alumni in the D.C. area, and those two schools have been covered in the D.C. market for years. Of course, no football team matters to D.C. more than the Washington football team. Uh, We have a lot to get to with our WFT. Ron Rivera on Thursday at his post-practice press conference opened up about the Curtis Samuel situation, and Ron opened up about the ahem quarterback competition that was, ahem, Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke. Some good stuff from Ron, some revealing stuff from Ron, and Ryan Fitzpatrick himself spoke on Thursday via post-practice press conference, said a lot of good stuff. Wait until you hear Fitzpatrick's answer to the question of whether he needed public confirmation that he is Washington's starting quarterback. Uh, I will talk Nationals as well. Another gack job of a loss by the Nats to the Philadelphia Phillies. Nats blew a 6-0 six-inning lead in a 7-6 loss to the Phillies at Nationals Park on Thursday afternoon. The game made history. I'll explain how, and I will get into the why of the collapse, because as RG3 told us years ago, it's important to know your why. Never forget that. Uh, I'll also discuss the many positives from the game for the Nationals as well. By the way, I will be doing a show for Monday, Labor Day. Yes, that is a holiday, but also, yes, this is a supersized sports weekend. Heck, the Nats this weekend are playing five games in four days against the New York Mets at Nationals Park. So there's a lot to talk about. Uh, Talk about it, we shall, on our show for Monday. A friendly reminder, this Labor Day weekend, when you have like 30 seconds to kill, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give the podcast a five-star rating if you haven't yet done that. And please write just like a one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast if you haven't yet uh, done that. Those things help out a lot. You know, you can hit pause on your iPhone or iPad right now. Just do those things real quick. And I thank you very much for doing those things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Mind After Math PhD. Writes Mind After Math PhD. I heard your stat on special teams being approximately 17% of snaps. I wonder how much of a percentage it is yards-wise. This will vary from team to team, though. I'd guess that we give up yards on special teams but don't get yards. Teams like the Ravens do the opposite, but I'll check it out. Uh, Yeah, I think that's a worthwhile exercise. So what Mind After Math PhD is referring to is what I made mention of on Thursday's show, episode 136, off all of this Troy Apke talk over the last few days, with Apke making Washington's 53-man roster, but say Jimmy Moreland not making Washington's 53-man roster. Special teams are important, but special teams only account for between one-sixth to one-fifth of a team snaps in a season. This thing of special teams are a third of the game, No, they're not, okay? That's just something that people say to sound tough or to sound smart or to sound, I don't know what, but special teams are not a third of football. Special teams are, again, a sixth to a fifth of football, okay? The Washington football team in the 2020 regular season totaled 1,089 offensive snaps, 1,045 defensive snaps, 
and 438 special team snaps. Special teams were not a third of the games for the Washington football team last regular season. Special teams for Washington last regular season worked out to 17.03% of Washington's total snaps. Again, between a sixth to a fifth of a team snaps in a season are special team snaps. Now, one more time, special teams matter. I'm not trying to say that special teams do not matter but there's a perspective that you need to have. Special teams do not matter nearly as much as offense or defense. Tweet from Brian Young. <laughs> You're rubbing off on me. The other day during my briefing, I broke into an ad for Dr. George Verghese. Well, you know what, Brian? That's a good thing. That's a great thing. And in fact, I'm going to do that right now. Dr. George Verghese, great guy, big Washington football team fan, great sense of humor as well. I'm sure he'll appreciate that tweet from you. But most importantly, Dr. George Verghese is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. I know you guys know this, but the health of your skin matters a lot, especially as we're coming out of summer and we've been spending so much time in the sun. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. If you happen to be dealing with skin cancer or you know of someone who is dealing with skin cancer, this is important. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. And SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, it turns out that having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. And Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. When you call, make sure that you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again is 301 396 3401 or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, so the Washington football team is in the midst of having a whole lot of time between the end of the team's preseason and the start of the team's regular season. Two-plus weeks, Washington's regular season opener against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field, not until Sunday afternoon, September 12th at 1. Washington practiced on Thursday what was a padded practice, but now will not practice again until Monday, when Washington also will have a padded practice, but three days off now for the players is mandated by the collective bargaining agreement Friday through Sunday. So there will be very little labor for Washington players on Labor Day weekend until Monday. But there's a lot to chew on from your Washington football team Thursday. So there were two guys who notably did not fully practice on Thursday, Chase Young and, wait for it, Curtis Samuel. Yes, I know. Shocking news. Uh, Ron Rivera during his post-practice press conference on Thursday, said that Chase Young had not been feeling well. Uh, Chase does not have COVID-19 per run, and Chase is expected to practice on Monday. As for Samuel, he 
on Thursday, again, was working on a side field. Uh, I feel like we've heard that before. Yeah. Uh, Curtis Samuel has become the landlord of the side field. When Curtis Samuel plays Monopoly, his number one landing spot on the game board is side field, okay? You know, some people like boardwalk. Curtis Samuel's spot on that game board is side field. He has been in the midst of the longest ramp up from a groin injury uh, you could ever imagine. Uh, So the groin injury, of course, uh, goes all the way back to at least June because the groin injury kept him from practicing all the way back in June at Washington's mandatory minicamp. I mean, just so you understand the dates here, Washington's mandatory minicamp was June 8th through the 10th. Thursday was September 2nd, and Samuel still wasn't fully practicing. Uh, Ron has consistently downplayed the injury. He, at his post-practice press conference on Thursday, said that we should expect to see Samuel, quote, work back in on Monday with the team, end quote. Ron then got asked what matters the most with this Samuel situation right now. What is Ron's level of optimism for Samuel's availability for week one against the Chargers? Oh, it's very high. Uh, He's been doing a lot of work, a lot of conditioning work on the side as well. Um, You know, with him, it's really going to be obviously getting everything down and ready to roll. And so we're we're, we're feeling very, uh, very confident. And he's he's had, you know, some, some really good days out there on the side. And, uh, and he's, he's, you know, every morning he comes in, he's feeling better and better. So we expect to have him out there uh, ready to go with his teammates on Monday. Okay, so Ron said that his optimism regarding Samuel playing in week one against the Chargers is, quote, very high, end quote. Ron reiterated the expectation that Samuel will be participating in team drills during Monday's practice. I did think that there was an overreaction on Thursday to Samuel still doing his side field thing. I like to have fun with Samuel and the side field, but the practices that matter the most in terms of who is practicing and who is not practicing aren't until next week. Uh, If on Monday and Wednesday of next week, Samuel is still doing his side field thing, uh, then we officially have a problem. But Thursday was still 10 days before the regular season opener. 10 days, basically a week and a half. Now, if you want to say that this groin injury has seemed to be more of a thing than Ron Rivera has let on, fine. I mean, I think that that's very much a possibility. But this idea that Thursday was some crucial day, it wasn't. Uh, You know, and this idea that the slow playing of Curtis Samuel's groin injury recovery continued, that Samuel's ramp up, the longest ramp up in the history of ramp ups continued, wasn't surprising. So I I don't really see it as like Thursday was this all telling day that, okay, now this means that this Curtis Samuel injury is a much bigger deal than we were ever led to believe. That may be the case, but I don't think Thursday is the tell of that being the case. So Ron at his post-practice press conference on Thursday then got asked this, given that we now are approaching week one, is there a need for Samuel to be doing extra work, perhaps with Ryan Fitzpatrick to be properly prepared for the regular season opener? I don't think so. I, I think it's, you know, with, 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 with Ryan, you know, being the pro that he is and, 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 and Curtis being, you know, a young veteran guy, uh, I don't think it should be an issue. Shouldn't be an issue. Uh, that has been the mantra from Ron regarding this Curtis Samuel groin injury situation. Now, later in Ron's post-practice press conference on Thursday, he got asked about the nature of Curtis Samuel's groin injury. Is there something about the injury that has made it harder for him to come back quickly as compared to the comeback from a typical groin issue? Well, 
Probably. Um, and again, I, I couldn't explain it if, 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 if I really knew it anyways. But I will say this, though, you know, a guy that runs fast, you know, the, the, the guys that, that are speedsters take a little bit longer. I mean, because, again, you don't want them to get out there and, and, and tweak it again. And next thing you know, he's out even longer. So, you know, and, 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 and plus having gone into the, into the COVID protocol, that also set him back a little bit as well. All right, so as you're probably noticing, Ron at his post-practice press conference on Thursday got asked about the Curtis Samuel situation a lot, and Ron actually opened up about the Curtis Samuel situation at least somewhat. And maybe we're being lied to here, but otherwise, Ron gave us some details and gave us some depth on what exactly has been happening here with Curtis Samuel. And yes, uh, Samuel also did deal with a stint on the reserve COVID-19 list. The Curtis Samuel timeline since training camp started. So Washington on July 27th, the first day of Washington training camp, put Samuel on the active, physically unable to perform list due to the groin injury. Washington, two days later, on July 29th, placed Samuel on the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington on August 9th, removed Samuel from the reserve COVID-19 list, but placed him back on the active, physically unable to perform list. Washington on August 15th, activated Samuel from the active, physically unable to perform list. But Samuel still has not been a full participant in practice this summer. And again, Thursday was September 2nd. Uh, Summer's going to be over soon, okay? It's going to be Halloween, and Curtis Samuel is still going to be on a side field. Uh, Just kidding, I think. Uh, Why is Ron optimistic about Curtis Samuel being available for week one against the Chargers? Because that is the takeaway, truthfully, from Ron's post-practice presser on Thursday regarding Curtis Samuel. Ron is very optimistic that Samuel will be available for week one against the Chargers. Why? And again, maybe all of this is an act from Ron, but if in fact the optimism is legitimate, what has Ron seen from Samuel in recent days to give cause for optimism? The speed and quickness coming back, um, you know, and then that's one of the things that's really, you know, a big part of his game is, is how quick he is, how fast he is, um, you know, and, and he was catching balls out there on the side and looks like it's re- that's really coming back as well. That, you know, just getting the, the rhythm back, uh, that's a big plus as well. So, um, you know, like I, like I told you guys, I'm uh, interested and excited to see him on, on Monday as we integrate him back into what we do. Yeah, that was a key point that Ron kept emphasizing on Thursday, Monday, Monday, Monday. We'll see Curtis Samuel participating in team drills on Monday and participating with a Washington receiving core that uh, sets up to be oozing with speed if everyone's healthy. More from Ron. Well, it, it'll be you know it'll be good to see him out there with everybody. You know, when we saw him, when he did get an opportunity to work with everybody, you know, you can see the difference, you can feel the difference because of the speed out there. I mean, you imagine having him and. Terry and, uh, and and Diami out there at the same time. I and mean, that's to me, that's pretty impressive. I mean, it's almost as good as some four by four relay teams. And Ron also got asked the following as again, there were a ton of Curtis Samuel questions at Ron's post-practice press conference on Thursday. Has there ever been a point in this longest ramp up in the history of ramp ups in which Ron has been concerned about Samuel's availability for week one against the Chargers. The truth of the matter is, if, if he was ready to go, great. If he wasn't, I'm not as concerned just because of who we have. I feel very comfortable with that receiver room. I think it's a, it's a good room. There's a lot of speed. There's a lot of talent. You know, uh, Curtis brings a little something extra, um, and, and, and you'd miss him, obviously. But, you know, we have guys that can, you know, do some of the things that he does. 
All right, and so the dance continues. Curtis Samuel, the groin injury. How serious is it? Why has the ramp up been so long? Will Curtis Samuel be available and be truly healthy come week one against the Chargers at FedEx Field? Well, you heard Ron say that Washington has guys who can do some of the things that Curtis Samuel does. John Grandlin of Real Broker, nobody can do the things that he does because John Grandlin offers commission flex. You know how much Ron Rivera adores position flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, position flex. Well, John Grandlin is the originator of something called commission flex. Listen up if you're looking to sell your home. The days of some flat commission rate, regardless of how easy it is to sell your home, are over. John G is changing the game with his groundbreaking concept of commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? It's simple. Flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. Don't just accept some flat rate of, say, 6%. John Granlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Granlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He'd come by your house and give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar. And maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn. If you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going. If you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor and call John Granlin. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. John G is a great guy. Big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan, good sense of humor. But most importantly, he is a master of DMV real estate. The phone number is 703-537-6747. When you talk to John G, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you. And make sure that you ask John G about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast. Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703 703- 537-6747 or visit John G sellsforfree.com. That's John G sellsforfree.com. John Granlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. We continue with the Washington football team conversation. So it was on Tuesday during Ron Rivera's and Martin Mayhew's joint press conference that followed the cut down to 53 that Ron, in responding to a question about potential Washington interest in Cam Newton, who had been released by the New England Patriots earlier in the day, said that Ryan Fitzpatrick is Washington's starting quarterback. Here was that off Ron being asked whether the Pats releasing Cam came across Ron's radar. It, it did pop up uh, on our on our radar, um, but just so you know, um, Ryan Fitzpatrick is our starting quarterback. Okay, um, and um, you know, so that's where we are. We, we have three guys we like, you know, that that all you know came to camp, did a nice job for us, and we're going to go forward with those guys. All right, so there it was. Remember, Ron had passed unofficially naming Fitzpatrick as Washington's QB1 previously, even though everybody knew 
that Fitzpatrick was Washington's QB1. Ron volunteered the declaration of Fitzpatrick as Washington's QB1 on Tuesday. So Ron, at his post-practice press conference on Thursday, got asked about the now-concluded quarterback competition. And I put quarterback competition in quotation marks because what is obvious now is that the competition was essentially this ultra-narrow window within which Taylor Heineke could become Washington's starting quarterback if like 10 different things happened. Like, I do think technically there was a competition and that there was a like 1% chance that Taylor Heineke emerged as Washington's starting quarterback. But clearly the plan since Washington signed Ryan Fitzpatrick, or at the very least, clearly the plan since we got through the bulk of the offseason has been for Ryan Fitzpatrick to be the Washington football team's QB1. So like, you know, Taylor Heineke could have become the starting quarterback if Ryan Fitzpatrick had a terrible training camp and Taylor Heineke had a great training camp. And if Ryan Fitzpatrick had a terrible preseason and Taylor Heineke had a great preseason. And if Ryan Fitzpatrick wasn't working hard and didn't know the plays and Taylor Heineke was working hard and did know the plays. And, you know, the wind was blowing northwest at 6.3 miles per hour, but never above 6.4 miles per hour. You get the idea. Otherwise, the starting quarterback job has been Ryan Fitzpatrick's all along. And it was always going to be Ryan Fitzpatrick's because all of those things that I just listed were never going to happen. Ron Rivera on Thursday on having previously admitted to making a mistake in not having had a quarterback competition between Dwayne Haskins and Kyle Allen last summer. It was it was a mistake on my part because, you know, I, I, I really wanted to make sure, you know, we, 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 we gave him every opportunity, give him every chance to develop and really get comfortable in there. And, 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 in hindsight, and again, we all know hindsight's twenty twenty. You can predict and, and whatever you want now. Now that you know the results, um, but having said that, you know now looking back at it, you know, and saying that that I wish I had done something a little bit differently, um, but I did what I thought was right. So in this situation, I just wanted to keep it the way it was. I, I didn't feel there was a need to, to, to point anything out the obvious, um, and again, just understand a lot of things that I try to do. I try to do on the timeline. Uh, what I think is best for everybody uh, on our, you know, on our football team, and and to me, there's a certain mentality when you start making, you know, edicts, you know, that this guy's that or that guy's this, and you know, I don't want to influence or impact anybody. I, I want them to go through uh, the process, and 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 in certain situations, circumstances, and and again, my first head coaching job, we drafted Cam Newton in the first round, and second week in in uh, second preseason game, I I, I thought it, be, it became prudent for me to go ahead and name him going forward from that point on. In this situation, I think that I didn't think there was a need. So Ron and Matt Cutt called Ryan Fitzpatrick being Washington's starting quarterback, quote, the obvious, end quote. And obviously, Fitzpatrick being Washington's starting quarterback has been obvious for months. Now, that doesn't mean that Taylor Heineke can't and won't play this season. Who knows what is going to happen this season with old Fitzy? But we now can close the case on the quarterback competition, which, remember, Ron was promoting to anyone who would listen about two and a half months ago. Now, one of the things that I said would be telling about the validity of the quarterback competition was the dispersal of first-team practice reps. How ultimately did Ron handle the first-team practice reps for Fitzpatrick and Heineke this summer? I mean, we started out, you know, sharing the reps. 
Um, and as we went through it, you know, the, 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 the evident part of it was, you know, Fitz's experience and his, his overall knowledge, football knowledge, football acumen, really just said, wow, this guy's really got it together. And then as we, we got into the first preseason game and you saw some of these, you know, and, and again, if you watched the first two series of each one of those games and you saw what he did, you just felt, okay, he gets it, the guys get him. And, you, you know, I, I feel very confident and comfortable that, you know, he can manage our offense and he can make plays when we need to have them made. Now, for Ryan Fitzpatrick, he basically knew all along that he would be Washington's starting quarterback. Remember this, Fitzpatrick in a conversation with Pablo Estori in an installment of the ESPN Daily podcast that dropped on July 19th said of his, Fitzpatrick's situation with the Washington football team going into the 2021 season, quote, I think this is the best situation I've ever been in or the best situation that I've ever got into as the guy. I signed to be the starter in Houston. I signed to be the starter in Miami. So this is now the third team that I've signed to come in and be the starter for. And quote, Fitzpatrick publicly on July 19th said, I signed here to be the starter. I signed here knowing that I come into the situation as the guy. He clearly was told this when he signed with Washington. It may well be that Ron said, look, Ryan, you're our guy. I'm going to talk up a quarterback competition, but pay no mind to that. You are our QB1. Now, again, I think there was that narrow path within which Ryan Fitzpatrick could have lost the starting quarterback job and Taylor Heineke could have become Washington's QB1, but like so many different things would have had to happen. Now, Fitzpatrick spoke via post-practice press conference on Thursday. Did knowing that he would be Washington's starter change anything for him in terms of learning Washington's offense or feeling comfortable in the offense? No, not really. I mean, I, you know, just the the competitive nature of the position, but really just competitiveness for, you know, athletes in general, uh, you know, coming in and having to to earn it and having to go out there and do it every single day. I think that's really important. And I think that's what has been created here in all the different position groups. Uh, but now as we get going into the season and, and having those defined roles and being able to really, um, you know, take all the reps and work on all the little nuances with different guys, um, that's when everything really gets heightened and becomes a big deal. So uh, it's it's nice you know, to know and to have that and to have those extra reps with those guys and uh, we'll continue as we go forward. Yeah, Fitzpatrick so sounds like he never for a second doubted whether he would be Washington's QB1. How about this exchange during his post-practice press conference on Thursday? The question is from Pete Haley of NBC Sports Washington. The past maybe 10 days or so, there's been like the tiniest little drama about Ron not publicly naming you a starter, and he did so a couple days ago. Did you ever feel like you needed that confirmation, or has this always felt like your job? No, I, I never I never really needed the, uh, the public confirmation. <laughs> I love that answer. The answer is like five seconds long, and that's all that Fitzpatrick's answer needed to be. Fitzy knew all along that he was the guy, both because of what he was told and because of his belief in himself. No, I, I never I never really needed the, uh, the public confirmation. Yes, exactly, Fitzpatrick. You didn't need nothing in terms of a public proclamation 
that you're Washington's QB1. Well, one of the things that we've talked about with Ryan Fitzpatrick is that his three best NFL seasons have been his last three seasons. Fitzpatrick's three highest graded regular seasons per pro football focus have been his last three seasons. Uh, Fitzpatrick is ranked in the top eight among qualified quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR in each of the last two regular seasons. He says that he's actually physically a better thrower of the football now as compared to earlier in his career. Like, not that he's making better decisions, although I think he will tell you that he is, but the mechanics of his throwing have improved. This was Fitzpatrick on Thursday. Definitely, you know, I've had just different things that I've toyed around with, and uh, so I've, I've become a more accurate passer. You know, it's still like, if you look at me throw versus some of these other guys, like, I don't think you would ever describe me throwing the football is effortless like it's you know it looks like it takes every fiber in my body to be able to throw the ball five yards but it's just the way that it's the way that I do it I've just I've been able to hone in on things that make me really accurate and then maybe some things where I'm not as accurate and try to stay away from those and and really you know highlight the different technique techniques and footworks and things that when I'm my most accurate those are the things that are more consistent. And so it, a lot of it has just been, I guess, self-discovery and doing it and figuring out and finding out what works for me. Yeah, Fitzpatrick is so at peace with himself as a player, where he's at in his career, the career that he has had. You get that sense every time that he does one of these press conferences. And you always learn stuff with these Ryan Fitzpatrick press conferences because he'll give you stuff. You know, he's smart when it comes to the quarterback position and he's not shy about talking about his career and how he's grown along the way. Uh, Fitzpatrick later in the press conference on Thursday got asked about the evolution of his mechanics. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the biggest thing initially uh, was probably tidying up the footwork a little bit. I, I mean, the biggest thing going back to college was a lot of elbow pain and how I could get rid of that and changing a little bit of my mechanics then and in the NFL it was more footwork uh, you know and in hopping around and being in different spots everybody has different things that they're harping on so really just getting a lot of different opinions on what people thought and then honing that into what was going to work best for me um, and then yeah the the throwing stuff just over time certain throws how do I become get my body in a position where I can be more accurate on those throws so there's there's been probably two or three big transitions in my career where that have helped me along the way now a big thing that we've discussed on the podcast regarding Fitzpatrick is why Washington signed Fitzpatrick Rod Rivera was not in love with the realistically available quarterbacks in the NFL draft to Washington Rod Rivera believes that you don't have to have a truly elite franchise quarterback to have a great season. And he's right about that. Plenty of non-elite quarterbacks have made Super Bowls in recent seasons. Jimmy Garoppolo, Jared Goff, Nick Foles. Now, those guys played well in those seasons to varying degrees. But no, those guys are not truly elite franchise quarterbacks. You might say that those guys are game managers. Now, that's a cliche phrase but you may have noticed this earlier this segment, Ron Rivera actually suggested that Ryan Fitzpatrick be a game manager for Washington. Take a listen. You know, he can manage our offense and he can make plays when we need to have him made. 
yeah, there you go. He can manage our offense and he can make plays when we need to have them made. Ron said that in a cut that I played for you earlier this segment. So this idea of Ryan Fitzpatrick as a game manager, does Fitzpatrick consider himself to be a game manager? I think every quarterback has to be. I mean, part of that is uh, getting all 11 guys on the same page. Part of that is knowing the situations of the game, whether it's a two-minute drive, uh, whether it's a a four-minute at the end of the game. You know, when the clock's running down, you've got to maybe get guys in the final formation and scrub the motion and get the snap count correct so you can get the playoff. There's a lot of different things. You know, you're on the edge of field goal range and you're not taking sacks. You know, those type of things that you hear all the time on the broadcast, uh, those are really important pieces of playing the quarterback position. So to me, managing a game and making the the right decisions, it doesn't necessarily mean just dinking and dunking and throwing short passes. It means making good decisions when when the that it pertain to the certain particular situation that you're in during a game. Yeah, he's right about that. Fitzpatrick, of course, is not a dinker and dunker. He neither dinks nor dunks. Uh, He historically is an aggressive downfield thrower of the football. Didn't do as much of that last season as we're accustomed to, but here's a key stat that backs up the reputation. Average completed air yards. Uh, This is a stat that's kept by the NFL's next-gen stats. Uh, Average completed air yards is your air yards per completion, i.e. the yards from the line of scrimmage to your pass catcher per completion. Uh, The quarterbacks with the two lowest average completed air yards in the 2020 regular season were Alex Smith at 3.8 and Dwayne Haskins at 3.6. Ryan Fitzpatrick ranked number 13 at 6.5. But Fitzpatrick in the 2019 regular season was number five in the NFL in average completed air yards at 7.1. Fitzpatrick in the 2018 regular season was number one in the NFL in average completed air yards at 8.8. Again, he is an aggressive downfield thrower of the football. Washington needs that badly, and hopefully the aggressive nature of Fitzpatrick's play will lead to many more explosive plays in Washington's passing game in the upcoming regular season. So we have talked Washington football team. Next up, we talk college football, the portion of the show that makes it my special college football preview show featuring two special guests and Goldilocks. We will get to the first of the special guests, Jeff Ehrman, the founder and publisher of InsideMDSports.com, Talking Maryland, after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Jeff Ehrman. He is the founder and publisher of a terrific site, InsideMDSports.com. If you're a Terrapins fan like I am, it's a must-read, great insight, great analysis, and especially after big Maryland games, it's one of the first things I look at in terms of what Jeff thought about the game. And there's a big one this Saturday afternoon, Maryland season opener, Terrapins home to West Virginia at 3.30. Jeff, it's great to talk to you again, man. How are you? Great to be back, Al. I'm good. Thank you for having me. So your three for Mike Loxley is Terps head coach, three and nine in 2019, two and three in 2020. Program desperately needs a breakout season. Does this Terps team strike you as having the potential to be, say, a bowl team this season? I think it does. I mean, and that's not just a local homer kind of view. You look at the odds makers, they're giving them like, I think their wins total over under is five and a half wins, which, you know, given their recent history is pretty respectable. You know, they haven't been to a bowl game in several years. Uh, I think he's, I mean, it's not, I think he clearly has stocked up the talent. Recruiting's been going really well for him the past few years. So you're starting to see some of those young guys with the recruiting headlines turn into guys who are, you know, sophomores, juniors on the field. Uh, so, you know, I think he's got a chance. The schedule's always tough in the Big Ten. It's not as tough this year as it usually is. And so I think fans, you know, realistically, a bowl game would be a great step forward in the process. Would you categorize this as a big year for Loxley in terms of needing to show progress? Not that his job is on the line this season, but that if Maryland has another lackluster season under him, the criticism might really pick up? Or do you think that we wouldn't be there even with another bad year for Maryland? No, I think we'd be there if this year was, you know, say three wins or something like that. The criticism would definitely be pretty heavy. Right now, no one's criticizing. No one's talking hot seat. He won't, you know, it's not like he'll be, he's in no danger right now, obviously. Everybody realizes that he inherited a mess on and off the field had to overhaul the entire roster but after two you know year three is typically when you start to show take that next step in your evolution he's clearly got the talent now so yeah I think if this year went into the tank then there would be you would see people start to complain and and worry all right so the issue for Maryland for seemingly forever has been quarterback Talia Tungavailoa is the starter he won a competition against the VMI transfer Reese Udinsky uh Talia in 2020 had some bad games but also had some outstanding games like that overtime win over Minnesota on Halloween weekend what do you think is realistic to expect from Talia this season yeah, Al, it's hard to say because we don't know, you know, those mistakes he made last year, he'd alternate between brilliance and terrible decisions. And so we don't know if that was freshman mistakes or if that's kind of embedded in his DNA. So this is the year that we find out because everything they've said, Loxley have said, has said through the spring and fall, you know, he was the MVP of camp. They've talked a lot about having Dan Enos in as offensive coordinator is huge for him and making him a lot more comfortable. So, you know, I don't see any reason why he can't be a top three or four easily quarterback in the Big Ten this year. But we need to see that those mistakes, some of those forced throws last year were just because he was starting for the first year and not, you know, those are a bug and not a feature. Yeah, I want to ask you about Dan Edos in a moment. With Reese Udinsky, is he a true factor at quarterback, or do you see a lengthy leash in place for Talia? I see a lengthy leash. Udinsky is apparently the real deal. You know, they say he's got 
uh, fifth or sixth round NFL grade on him. He's, he's only about five or six months off of surgery, though, to re- repair an ACL. They say he's healthy, but I think the preference would be, obviously, not to have to play him, at least not anytime soon. Uh, so he, you know, they think he's legitimately a quality Big Ten starter, if not NFL prospect. But it is it's Leah's job to lose by far, and it would take, I think, you know, a sustained period of Talia struggling for them to make a move. So with the new Maryland offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, Dan Enos, what does he bring into the Terps? He brings familiarity. You know, he worked with Loxley and Tunga Bailoa in 2018. Obviously, Talia was the backup. He didn't play a lot, but he learned under them. He learned the system. So they've been able to go back to some of the terminology they used that they had switched last year so that Scotty Montgomery, last year's offensive coordinator, uh, could understand all the terminology. So they've reverted to what they used at Alabama. They say that's made them more comfortable. Loxley feels like Enos is an extension of himself as a play caller. Uh, I don't think he felt the same way necessarily about Montgomery. So he thinks, you know, Enos is going to dial up what he's what he would dial up if it was him. And you know, if they are anywhere in the same galaxy as what they did in 2018, you know, is Alabama's best offense of all time. Yeah, well, uh, it would be nice to have just a portion of that for Maryland this season, yeah. no doubt. That would be great. Uh, there's a lot of talent in that Maryland receiving core again. Uh, safe to say that that's the biggest strength of the team on offense? Yeah, clearly it is. You know, they've, they're really deep, very experienced, and then they've got some younger guys behind those experienced guys. Dante Demas, obviously, is the number one guy. He's probably, you know, if he has a good, he could have a good year and be a top three round NFL pick. Rakeem Jarrett five-star receiver obviously there's been a ton of more hype about him than anybody he's the real deal and then there's you know jay sean jones and brian cobbs are both guys who've seemingly been around forever and can make plays and behind them there's a whole bunch of other guys who i think could play for a lot of other big 10 teams so it's the deepest receiver room that i can recall them having since those region years yeah it's exciting to see that what to you is the biggest worry spot for maryland on offense yeah, it's the offensive line without a, without a doubt. You know, they lost a couple of starters to transfer. Johnny Jordan, their center, went to Virginia Tech. Marcus Minor, a tackle, went to Pitt. And so they're breaking in a, several new guys. You know, they're pretty good on the outside. Jalen Duncan at left tackle, Spencer Anderson at, left, at right tackle. They really like those guys. But there's some question marks in the middle. They're breaking in the new center, Eric Harris, a junior college transfer. So that's the question, you know, and, and there's not a lot of, there's no proven depth behind them. There's some young guys who they think can be capable guys. So that is by far, if there's one thing that really uh, sidetracks their season, you would think it would be the offensive line. We're talking Maryland football with Jeff Ehrman, the founder and publisher of InsideMDSports.com. So new offensive coordinator for Maryland, no defensive coordinator for Maryland as well. Brian Stewart, uh, what are your thoughts on him? Yeah, he's been there before. You know, he was there under Randy Edsel, uh, was let go in, I believe it was 2015. I mean, he's been around quite a bit. He's a journeyman, but a lot of good schools and NFL teams can continue to hire him. So obviously, you know, he's not uh, one of these other guys we've seen in Maryland, these defensive coordinators who just disappeared from the earth after they struggled at Maryland. He did struggle late in his tenure at Maryland the last time. Uh, I think he'll be an aggressive, supposedly, you know, everybody's an aggressive blitzing defense until they're not. 
but I think that's going to be his style. And the, and the good news for him is he's inheriting a lot of talent. I feel like uh, people talk about Talia and these receivers, but I feel like the defense might actually be stronger than the offense. Yeah, I'm waiting for the new defensive coordinator who comes in and says, "Eh, we're not going to pressure that much. We're just going to kind of, we're going to bend but don't break. That's our strategy." Yeah, I'm going to drive everybody at home on their watching on their TVs insane by sitting back on third down and giving up the conversion. Yeah, right, exactly. No one ever says it, although plenty of people do it. So with the defense, it's yeah. interesting what you say because we have seen some bad Maryland defenses in recent years. What gives you optimism regarding Maryland's defense? I think there's a lot of reason for optimism there cornerbacks and safeties are, are really good uh last year you know their defense their pass defense was much improved i think it was third best in the big 10 the, the running defense the rush defense was the problem uh the defensive line should be improved they got a couple junior college guys back who looked good toward the end of last year and uh mo kite and ami Fanau. uh they've got good depth there they've got their best recruiting class you know in terms of the de- defensive line maybe ever and then they've got a ton of talented young linebackers those guys aren't proven so that's probably the biggest question mark guys like Ruben Hippolyte who should be the kind of the quarterback of the defense uh and and some of these other young four-star recruits they brought in they have to prove themselves but the talent is definitely there so also with Maryland you have to bring up COVID-19 because that was such an issue for the team last season we have no idea how things are going to play out with it this season it sounds like the Terrapins are well-equipped here to do a good job with COVID-19. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think basically the whole team has to be vaccinated because it's a university rule unless you have, you know, a religious or health exemption. As of, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Loxley said they were at like 97% player-wise and that the whole coaching staff was vaccinated. So I think you'll get pretty much 100% there. I'd be surprised if they just don't have just about everybody. What'd you think about the Big Ten policy regarding COVID where basically for conference games, there are no postponements. If you as a team can't play because of a COVID situation and the opposing team can play, uh, that's a forfeit. I like it. I mean, you know, we're a year removed. Last year, no one was prepared, so you give everybody a lot of leeway. You know, there's nobody even knew what COVID was until you know the previous spring, and it was a developing situation. Now this year, you have the vaccine. You've had plenty of time to prepare for it and take the precautions. And so, you know, I feel like that's the right call. How how many years could you go? Can you go on where? Oh, if you can't you can't play, then you can't play, and we'll just chalk that one up. So I like that rule. I think it, you know, it holds people accountable. Any guesses as to what the crowd is like Saturday against West Virginia? You think it's a good crowd? Everybody keeps asking me that. I think you know. I think it'll be full. Hope you hope. If you're a Maryland fan, not full of blue and gold. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a short trip, and they travel. They're they're very religious about their football team. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it's in that 60-40 ratio is kind of what I've come up with in Maryland's favor. Uh, maybe it'll be better. Maybe I'm underestimating. The past few years, the turnout's been bad. But, you know, the, the results have been bad. Last year, you had COVID, obviously, so no one was there. But I, I feel like people are itching to get out. And, you know, kind of there's been a little more excitement. And the fact that it's a border arrival will get people out a little bit more. So I think it should be a pretty packed house. Yeah, pretty close point spread as well. Well, Jeff, uh, continued success, man. And thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
All right, we now welcome on our second special guest on this special college football preview installment of the Al Galdi podcast, Mike Barber, ACC insider for Richmond.com. He's here to talk Virginia Tech and Virginia football. Hey, Mike, how are you? Excellent. Thanks for having me. All right, so uh, talk about no warming up in the bullpen. Virginia Tech will begin its season against number 10 North Carolina Friday evening at 6. Tar Heels may have the best quarterback in the country in Sam Howell. Uh, we presume that Lane Stadium will be rocking, but there's obviously pressure on Justin Fuente to win this season. Would you say that it's good or bad for Fuente and the Hokies to be beginning their season with such a big game? Oh, Al, check back with me after Friday. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, conceptually the idea of, of playing Carolina, you're going to have to play them. If you want to win the Coastal, you have to beat them. Um, better to get them in week one when they're still working in those new running backs and new wide receivers. So if you believe that Virginia Tech can be a factor in the Coastal, I think getting Carolina week one is a big advantage. Now, the flip of that is everything swirling outside the program. Justin Fuente's job security and uh, that schedule that's kind of front-loaded, at least from a fan standpoint. You've got Carolina, you've got West Virginia, you've got Notre Dame in your first five weeks. If you lose the Carolina game, especially if you're not competitive, the vibe around the program just becomes really negative and, and, and you're in a lot of danger early. You can lose to Carolina and still have a great season, but the feeling isn't going to be there. Um, so on the field, I think strategically it's great to get an opponent like that week one, but off the field, if it doesn't go your way, it really puts them behind the eight ball um, in a lot of different areas. So with the Justin Fuente situation, Virginia Tech Director of Athletics Whit Babcock last December announced that Fuente would be back for a sixth season as Hokies head coach. When you have to announce that your head coach is coming back, that's almost always a sign that your head coach may well soon be not coming back. Uh, Tech went just five and six last season. Safe to say that this season is a make or break season for Justin Fuente as Tech head coach. Oh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, Al, Whit Babcock, the athletic director, held a press conference to announce that he wasn't firing Justin Fuente. And while that's great news for Justin Fuente, uh, if your boss has to come out and announce that he's not firing you, things aren't in a good position. So Justin Fuente um, needs to win, and he needs to win fairly big this year. Now, what's interesting is he's got a great recruiting hall uh, that he's landed here for the next class. It's possible that if he ends himself in a gray area, and by a gray area I mean seven and five, but you beat Virginia, you go to a bowl game, that's not wonderful. And it's probably not what they're looking for, but that recruiting class could come into play and save him. But um, I really think he needs to win eight games, and, and there are certain games, like that Virginia game, he absolutely has to win. I, I think, yeah, I think this is 100% a make-or-break year. What are the principal complaints about Justin Fuente as Virginia Tech head coach? The overall record isn't bad, but that largely has to do with the first two seasons. Well, number one is you take those first two years out and his record isn't very good. Now, I would argue, why would you take those years out? <laughs> you won 10 games, you won a division, you won nine games. But, you know, if you're a fan, you're looking and saying, OK, our win total is trending the wrong direction. Um, you know, we're going down, down, down from that 10 win season. Second, recruiting wise, I mentioned he's got a great class, I think, in the wings here, um, but they haven't been thrilled with the recruiting up to this point. There was a lot of emphasis placed on Texas, and um, what kind of happened was they went out there and they got some good recruits at Texas, 
and none of them have stayed. It's sort of been the revolving door of, um, you know, they did the hashtag of Texas to VT. Well, it needed another line because it ended up being Texas to VT back to Texas. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I think those are the two big things, right, it is the recruiting hasn't been where they wanted it and the win totals have been on the way down. I don't think, you know, I think Justin Fuente can pull it out. You know, I think he's a good coach. I think the recruiting's on the upswing, and I think they're going to win a bunch of games this year. Uh, but if they don't, yeah, I, I see where the fans are, are kind of lukewarm or, or worse on it. So the Hokie starting quarterback is Braxton Burmeister. 2020 was a weird year for Tech at quarterback with Burmeister, Hendon Hooker, and uh, Knox Kadem all playing. What's the thinking on what kind of a season Burmeister can have? Yeah, so here's what's interesting. If you go back to the preseason before 2020, the coaches were raving about Braxton Burmeister, his athleticism, his versatility, uh, his development as a passer, and they were raving about Raheem Blackshear, a transfer running back from Rutgers, and the way they could play off each other. And then as the year unfolded, it ended up being mostly hooker. Uh, Braxton broke his foot when a lineman stepped and crushed some toes. Um, Blackshear never got going. Khalil Herbert, the transfer from Kansas, ended up being a thousand yard back. I think the coaches are really high on the vision of the offense they had last year at this time. And I think this is a chance to realize it now with uh, Burmeister is one of the two or three best athletes all around any position on the team. They have a lot of confidence in him. Justin Fuente said in Charlotte at ACC media days, he's never felt better about their ability to throw the football, which is a, a pretty big statement. Um, so they really feel good about what they've got on offense and, and what they've got in Burmeister. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about what Tech has on offense. Five offensive linemen who own a combined 92 collegiate starts. All five of Tech's top pass catchers from last season are back. Hokies have plenty of options at running back. It seems like this Tech offense can be a really good one this season. You would think. I mean, they have all the components. The, the big question is the running game, the traditional running game, right? I think Burmeister is going to make plays with his legs. Um, certainly, they've got guys in the pass game who can also be involved. James Mitchell, the tight end, he is a lethal runner. And they get him the ball as a wildcat. They get him the ball on end around. The question is, are they going to have a tailback they can put back there for 20, 24, 25 carries, hand him the ball, and be the old Virginia Tech, right? The Kevin Jones, Virginia Tech, the uh, Cedric Humes, all, all those teams where Lee Suggs were, and they would just line up and mash you with their line and the running back. That's the big question. But I think they have a chance to be dynamic in the throw game. I think Burmeister and some of their versatile pieces are going to create some matchup problems. Um, and I do think that offensive line, you know, it's interesting. we got that depth chart, and we've been talking about all these veterans and seniors and guys with starts under their belt. And then Caden Moore uh, is listed as the starter at right guard. He's a true freshman. Now, to me, that's great news if you're a Tech fan because you still got Johnny Jordan, the transfer from Maryland, and you still got Terrell Smith, the 6th, 7th, 8th, 12th year senior, whatever he is at this point with his three degrees, you've got him back. So you've got a deeper unit up front than maybe we thought going in. What would you say is the biggest concern for the Hokies this season in terms of their roster? Yeah, I think there's no question it's the depth. Um, Al, I look at this team and I think they're starting 11 on offense. They're starting 11 on defense. I think they can win a Coastal Division title with that group. Not that they're the favorite, but I think they're good enough to do that. I look at their second 11, and I think a couple injuries, and this could be a four-win team. So uh, they're very thin at defensive end in particular. I still think they're a little thin on the offensive line, um, and I think they're a little thin experience-wise at wide receiver. So 
this is a team that I really like if you tell me they're going to be mostly healthy for 12 games. If you tell me they're going to have a bunch of injuries at some key spots, that's the big question. We're talking Virginia Tech and Virginia football with Mike Barber, ACC insider for Richmond.com. Also is the co-host of a terrific podcast, Teal and Barber. Mike Barber and David Teal talking Hokies and Wahoos on that pod. If you're a Virginia Tech and or Virginia fan, definitely want to check that out. So with the Virginia Cavaliers, they begin their season Saturday night, home to William and Mary at 730. The schedule, though, then stiffens quite a bit as the season goes on. This is year six for Bronco Mendenhall as Wahoo's head coach. Virginia in 2020 declined to participate in a bowl game, but Virginia prior to last season had made three consecutive bowl games, including the Orange Bowl for the 2019 season, and Virginia had been projected to be a participant in one of the ACC's affiliated bowl games for the 2020 season. Where would you say we are with Virginia football right now? Yeah, I think it's really remarkable what they've been able to do. Um, you know, they took over a program that was in a bad place, was kind of a, an ACC doormat. They had just an atrocious on the field first year. I mean, they won 10 games. Things did not go well. Um, you've got this coaching staff coming from the West Coast. They had to introduce themselves, essentially, to all the high school prospects in the Atlantic region. Um, they were really in a, in a tough spot. And, and what they've built uh, is pretty remarkable, I think, to, to win a division title there in, in year four and go to the Orange Bowl. And um, you know, last year was an odd year, but they were still in line for a bowl game had they opted to play. Um, so I think it's remarkable what they've done. You know, Bronco Mendenhall and Carla Williams met with the Board of Visitors recently and told them UVA has the worst facilities in the ACC. Um, there may be a little hyperbole. I think there's some other spots that could argue for that crown, if that's what we're going to call it. Um, but the point is, Bronco Mendenhall and the staff have been able to do more with less. Uh, I think it's remarkable where they are. And I think that as the school ramps up its support, um, they're really in a good position going forward. So the Cavs starting quarterback again this season is Brennan Armstrong. He is a lefty. He is mobile. Uh, what are your expectations for him uh, as the Cavaliers starting quarterback again? You know, it was fun talking to Brennan and Charlotte at media days. I started to ask him a question. I said, I think the perception is if you're good, and he interrupted me, he kind of cut in and he said, yeah, if I'm good, we can be pretty good. If I'm bad, we're not going to have a great season. And, and he knows that. Um, I think he's an intriguing player. You know, the ACC is quarterback rich this year. Um, we could talk for a half hour and still not get to guys like Kenny Pickett at Pittsburgh or Phil Yurkovich at Boston College. They're great quarterbacks in the league. Brendan Armstrong's a little bit of the wild card. And if he makes progress from where he was in the second half of last year, uh, that could elevate this UVA team to being third or fourth in the Coastal. Uh, if he struggles, if he turns the ball over, uh, if he's not as quick in his progressions as the coaches are claiming he's become, I think it takes them back a notch to, to really struggling. So uh, I think Brandon Armstrong is talented. I think he has the ability to be a really good quarterback. And what he does will dictate really what this team does. Like Virginia Tech's offensive line, Virginia's offensive line has a lot of experience. Cavaliers return six offensive linemen. Uh, would you say that this line is good enough to pave the way for a Virginia running game that we know Bronco wants to be good with Wayne Taulapapa? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and for the first time in Bronco's tenure, he has a group up front um, that is veteran, that is talented, that is deep enough to, to do that. You know, every time we talk about the run game, we talk about Wayne Talapapa and we say, you know, is he going to be good this year? Is he going to be better this year? And Bronco always kind of corrects us. He says, hey, 
Wayne Talapapa hasn't been the problem. <laughs> it's the guys in front. He said, if we block the plays the way we're supposed to block them and we open the holes, we believe Wayne Talapapa can be a big-time back. And I think this is the first year we're going to see whether or not that's true. They've got some other pieces. Uh, Ronnie Walker, uh, who transferred back from Indiana, a Richmond kid, uh, he's got a chance to be an explosive player at tailback. And Ahmad Faustin, um, the young player who enrolled early, freshman, uh, he's got some speed, could be a third down back. But, yeah, they believe that they've got the – the pavers up front now to really have a traditional run game led by Wayne Talapapa. What do you think Virginia's defense will be like this season? I know the Virginia secondary was not good last season. Yeah, it's it's the biggest question about this team. Um, I look at the names in that secondary. You know, as I'm sitting here, I, it's right behind me, I've got the depth chart on my whiteboard, and I, I, the names are the same names as last year in terms of the starting lineup. And I think they're pretty darn good players. Uh, Joey Blunt at safety, he was injured now. Uh, Devontae Cross, they had to have him play corner last year. He's really a safety. He'll be back at that position. Um, so you look at it and you say, okay, they stunk in the secondary last year. They got the same guys back. They'll probably stink again. But I think there's a reason to believe that even though they're the same pieces, they'll be good. Now, they've also brought in some guys. Anthony Johnson, uh, the transfer corner from Louisville, he's on the two deep. He's not a starter, but I think he can uh, really be a factor. He's a very physical corner in the run game, coming up to stop plays. Uh, and then Josh Hayes, the corner from North Dakota State. They had high hopes for him. He's been a little dinged up in camp, and that's why he's not a factor now. But if that secondary is better and plays better, this defense could be markedly improved. If they don't, yeah, I don't I don't see how you improve if you're giving up that many long pass plays. Biggest strength for the Wahoos is what, would you say? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I, I still think that they have some dynamic playmakers at the linebacker spot. I think Noah Taylor and Elliot Brown can be um, kind of the pass rush duo that Charles Snowden and Noah Taylor was a year ago. Um, I think they're long and tall and disruptive. Uh, Nick Jackson inside. So the linebackers, even though they've got some guys to replace, I think they're athletic. I think they're versatile. They've talked about playing guys from the outside inside and vice versa. Uh, so I really think that the linebackers can lead this defense this year, which, you know, your Bronco, you play that base 3-4, you need your linebackers to lead the way. Which team has the better season, Virginia Tech or Virginia? That's a great question. I still think Virginia Tech is just a notch ahead. Um, I think Tech finishes third in the Coastal. I think UVA's right behind them in fourth. Um, that Tech-UVA game at the end of the year is going to be really interesting because I think they're both going to be good, and that makes it better. But, you know, Justin Fuente, I think, is going to be coaching for his his life in that game. So uh, very much looking forward to it. But I, I think fans are going to find both teams enjoyable to watch this year. Very excited to watch him. Mike Barber does an awesome job covering the Hokies and the Hoos. ACC insider for Richmond.com and the co-host of a great podcast if you're in Virginia Tech and Virginia football, Teal and Barber. Mike, all the best, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right, it is time to do that thing that I do when it comes to college football. Goldilocks, my college football picks, incorporating the spreads for Maryland, Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. Only a wuss picks games without point spreads. You got to incorporate the point spreads. Now, this is not a pick segment in which I am cherry picking those bets that I like the best. This is a pick segment in which I am talking D.C. area college football, and I put D.C. area in quotation marks because, yes, Blacksburg, Virginia, and Charlottesville, Virginia are hours away 
from the D.C. area, or the D.C. area, as some like to say. But the four major FBS programs that are considered area programs and have been covered as such for years are Maryland, Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia. They don't get talked about nearly enough on D.C. Sports Talk Radio and on D.C. Sports Pods. And so... I like to talk about these programs. I have talked about these programs for years, and I'm going to continue to talk about these programs on this podcast. Now, when it comes to how I make my picks, I use two methodologies primarily. Uh, One is the contrarian handicapping philosophy that has become very popular over the last 10 to 15 years. This is what my friend Kevin Sheehan does and does very well. Uh, This is what a lot of people do. You find anti-public plays with lines that seem too good to be true, and you go against the grain. You make a contrarian play. The reason behind this thinking is that Vegas is right far more often than the public. Uh, that's why there are all of those big shiny buildings in Vegas. And and so instead of going with the dummies, instead of going with the public, you go with the sharps. You go with Vegas. Uh, the problem is that with Maryland, Navy, Virginia Tech, and Virginia games, you don't often get contrarian handicapping opportunities, although you do sometimes. So that's one methodology. The other methodology that I use primarily for picking games in Goldilocks is analytics. Uh, I like to look at team efficiencies, which you can find on ESPN.com and footballoutsiders.com. But the team efficiency stuff is only something to look at. It is certainly not gospel regarding handicapping. There is no surefire methodology for handicapping. If there was, there wouldn't be all of those big shiny buildings in Vegas. All right, so with all of that as the setup, we now begin Goldilocks for what is considered to be week one of the college football season. Even though we had games last weekend, I will not be picking Virginia, William & Mary. Uh, lines for that game are readily available because that is a game in which you have an FBS team versus an FCS team. You can find lines for such games, but a lot of the major shops do not offer lines for such games. And by the way, the lines that I use are from Caesars Sportsbook. So here we go. Goldilocks game number one, Maryland, home to West Virginia, Saturday afternoon at 3.30. The Terrapins are plus two and a half. So early season college football is one of the toughest things to bet because you don't know what so many of these teams are. Heck, these teams themselves don't know what they are. The basic deal for the Terrapins this season is that they will go as far as Talia Tungavailoa takes them. He last season at times did not look good, but he last season at times was spectacular. If the latter is on display more often than not, or close enough to the latter is on display more often than not, then I do think the Terps can have a really good season. But if Talia struggles, or at the very least is inconsistent, like so many Maryland quarterbacks over the last, say, 20 years have struggled or been inconsistent, then the Terps are going to have problems. Uh, I actually think that he has a chance to begin the season well against a West Virginia defense that lost a lot of players from a unit that was good last season. Maryland is loaded at receiver. We talked about that with Jeff Ehrman earlier in the show. Mike Loxley did get the Terps off to a good start in 2019. I will take the Turtles, and I will gladly take the two and a half points. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Ah, yes, perhaps the best part of Goldilocks, the Snoop Doggy Dog drop to end all Snoop Doggy Dog drops, because that is what we are here to do at the end of the day, and that is to make you money, money. Make money, money, make money, money, money.
That's right, Snoop. Thank you. Goldilocks game number two, Virginia Tech, home to number 10, North Carolina, Friday evening at six. The Hokies are plus five and a half. What a way for Tech to begin its season. What is a make or break season for Justin Fuente as Hokies head coach? You heard Mike Barber make that clear last segment. I don't love this as an opener for Tech. Uh, North Carolina has a quarterback in Sam Howell who could be the number one overall pick in the 2022 NFL draft. When you're watching Tech UNC on Friday night, close your eyes and picture in your burgundy and gold mind Sam Howell in the burgundy and the gold in 2022. But I digress. Uh, Sam Howell and Oklahoma quarterback Spencer Rattler are the top two NFL quarterback prospects in college football, at least to begin the season. Three things to me offer hope for the Hokies on Friday night. A, Tech does have talent. B, the Tar Heels' defense last season wasn't very good, and Carolina lost its best defensive player from last season, linebacker Chaz Surratt, to the NFL. And C, the Tar Heels also lost a bunch of skill position players, including, of course, De'Ami Brown, who is now with the Washington football team, but also gone is another receiver, Daz Newsom, and two running backs, Javante Williams and Michael Carter. All of that said, I got to see it before I believe it when it comes to Virginia Tech this season. This being a make-or-break season for Fuente could end up ruining this season. There is a lot of pressure on him to win. Everybody knows it. Gimme UNC minus the five and a half. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Thank you, Snoop. And then Goldilocks game number three, Navy, home to Marshall, Saturday afternoon at 3.30. The midshipmen are plus two and a half. So the mids, they are coming off a very disappointing three and seven season in 2020. And what was especially disappointing was that Navy was not a great rushing team in 2020. You know the deal with Navy's offense. It's all about the triple option offense. The midshipmen have tortured teams with that triple option offense for years now. But the running game last season was not great. And Navy needs the running game to be great because Navy is never going to overwhelm you with the passing attack or with just talent in general. We don't know for sure who Navy's starting quarterback is. Navy may well know, but we do not know. Uh, But the quarterback play in the triple option is huge in terms of knowing if slash when to pitch the football. And Navy has had some great quarterbacks over the years with the triple option offense, right? Think Keenan Reynolds. Think Malcolm Perry. So what ends up happening with Navy at quarterback this season is huge. The good news for Navy is that its defense could be good this season, but Marshall has a quality quarterback in Grant Wells. He last season was the Conference USA Freshman of the Year. He was selected by the coaches as the Conference USA All-Conference First-Team Quarterback. He became the first freshman quarterback ever to make a Conference USA All-Conference First-Team Also, there's this, and here's where like the analytics come into play. So ESPN has its football power index, the FPI. The FPI will project winners uh, every week in college football. The FPI overwhelmingly likes Marshall in this game. Marshall is a projected winner at 69.5%. I will take Marshall and I will lay the two and a half. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Yes, thank you, Snoop. All right, so to summarize, I have Maryland plus the two and a half. I got North Carolina minus the five and a hook. And I got Marshall at minus two in the hook. And there you have it, Goldilocks for college football's week one.
All right, so the Nationals, thankfully, now are done with the Philadelphia Phillies in the 2021 season. And if the Nats never play the Phillies again, I think we'll all be just fine with that. Uh, The Nats and Phillies this season routinely played games that took forever. And too often, those games resulted in Nats losses, especially Nats losses in which the Nats blew a lead of three runs or more. So the Nats on Thursday afternoon lost to the Phillies. 7-6 was the final at Nationals Park. The game took three hours, 52 minutes. This was a nine-inning game. The game took three hours, 52 minutes. The game also featured the Nats blowing a 6-0 six-inning lead. This series concluded a 6-13 season for the Nats against the Phillies. Incredibly. Seven of the Nats' 13 losses to the Phillies this season featured the Nats blowing a lead of at least three runs. The Phillies, with these seven wins, set a record for the most such wins by a team against another team in a regular season in the modern era, which is since 1900. No team had ever done what the Phillies have just done to the Nats since 1900. That's author seven wins in a season with each of the seven wins featuring the team overcoming a deficit of at least three runs. So yeah, you could say that the Phillies were the Nats' daddies this season. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Yes, thank you, Arnold. Uh, There were actually quite a few things to like from the Nats on Thursday, but the problem was there were too many things not to like. So first of all, terrible defensive inning for Luis Garcia in a Phillies four-run eighth. Uh, Garcia made two big defensive mistakes in that Phillies four-run eighth. He simply whiffed on a hard hit, one-out, bases-loaded grounder off the bat of pinch hitter Nick Maton on a play on which two runs scored to tie the game at six. And what happened was simply this. Garcia turned for a feed to second base before he ever caught the baseball. The grounder could have led to an inning-ending double play. Garcia was obviously aware of that, but before he actually had possession of the baseball, he started turning towards second base and he ended up whiffing on the baseball. This is like a pass catcher in football turning to run before he catches the football. That's almost like what happened here with Luis Garcia. So that was a bad moment. And then with perhaps that moment still weighing on Garcia's mind, he made another defensive boo-boo in the inning. Runners at the corners, Luis Garcia double clutches off catching an Odubel Herrera grounder, resulting in a run-scoring force out at second base when Garcia likely had the time to throw home to prevent the go-ahead run from scoring, or at the very least could have made a quicker throw to second base and the play perhaps might have resulted in an inning-ending double play. Uh, Two bad moments for Luis Garcia, who, look, is a very young player. This is only Luis Garcia's age 21 season. Obviously, you hope that he learns from an inning like that. 
Uh, but that was tough to watch. Garcia in the bottom of the eighth did draw a one-out five-pitch walk, and he did have three hits over the first two games in the series, but he also had a bad defensive moment in game one of the series, the 7-4 loss on Monday night. Garcia, while playing shortstop, committed a two-out throwing error on a two-out full-count grounder by Gene Segura in what did end up being a scoreless top of the six for the Phillies. Now, I mentioned the Phillies on Thursday afternoon having a four-run eighth. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> the Nats bullpen, a big fail in this game. All seven Phillies runs scored with Nats relievers pitching. Now, not all seven of the runs were charged to Nats relievers, but all seven Phillies runs scored with Nats relievers pitching. Six Nats relievers officially combined to allow five runs, three earned in three and two-thirds innings. Mason Thompson struggled in a three-run Philly six. He faced three batters, got no outs. He entered the game with runners on first and second, one out, and the Nats leading 6 nothing. promptly issued a one-out five-pitch walk of JT Realmuto, followed by a one-out three-run double by Andrew McCutcheon, and then a one-out four-pitch walk of pinch hitter Brad Miller. Sam Clay did put out the fire in the top of the six. He entered the game with runners on first and second and one out, but then got two outs on four pitches. Then we had the Major League debut of Alberto Baldonado whose contract the Nats selected from AAA Rochester on Wednesday. Alberto Baldonado. I mean, the name <laughs> sounds made up, right? I remember as a kid, Candy Maldonado. This is Alberto Baldonado, and he actually did a great job in his Major League debut. He works the top of the seventh. He throws a scoreless top of the seventh in which he records two strikeouts, including a six-pitch strikeout of Bryce Harper for the third out. Then it was Patrick Murphy time, and he was not good in what ended up being a four-run Phillies eighth. Murphy faced four batters, got just one out, and ultimately was charged with three runs, two earned. Murphy gave up a leadoff double to JT Realmuto, an RBI single to Andrew McCutcheon, and a one-out single to Freddie Galvis. Then it was time for Andres Machado in the Phillies' four-run eighth inning. Now, Machado was only charged with an unearned run, but he was not good. He began his appearance by issuing a one-out seven-pitch walk of Rafael Marchand, despite him having been down to the count at 1.02. The Phillies then scored three runs on two ground balls, one of which resulted in that fielding error and also fielder's choice on Luis Garcia. And then Austin Voth worked the game for the Nats, and he did well. He tossed a perfect top of the ninth with two strikeouts. But six Nats relievers in this game. See, this is what happens when you have to use so many relievers in a game, and the Nats have had to do this so many times this season, use, say, three or more relievers game in, game out. Not all of the relievers you use are going to have it. And so what inevitably happens is one, two, maybe even three guys have it, but one, two, maybe three guys inevitably do not have it. And so you get got. And the Nationals on Thursday afternoon got got. Sam Clay was good. Alberto Baldonado was good. Austin Voth was good. But Mason Thompson was not good. Patrick Murphy was not good. Andres Machado was not good. And thus, the bullpen ended up playing a massive role in the Nets blowing a 6 nothing six-inning lead. It was a shame that the Nats bullpen wasn't good because the Nats starting pitcher was good. Paolo Espino was good for a second consecutive start. Two runs in five into third innings for Paolo on Thursday afternoon. He had five strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up just four hits, all of which were singles. He threw 59 strikes versus 30 balls on 89 pitches. And Paolo had a leadoff single in the Nats three-run fifth. Second consecutive start in which Paolo is good 
and has a hit. Paolo, in his previous outing, the 2-1 win at the New York Mets last Friday night, was terrific. One run in five innings, seven strikeouts versus no walks, and he had a hit, a leadoff single in an Nats two-run third. So yeah, in each of his last two outings, he's had a leadoff single in what ends up being a multi-run inning for the Nationals. And also for Paolo on Thursday afternoon, the two runs that were charged to him came with him out of the game. He in a Phillies three-run six sandwich, two singles around recording it out, and then got pulled from the game. But Paolo was good. The Nats bullpen, unfortunately, was not good. Uh, Some other bright spots for the Nats in this 7-6 loss to the Phillies at Nationals Park on Thursday afternoon. Big game for Juan Soto. Three for four with a two-run homer, a two-run single, another single, and a walk. Bottom of the first, he drew a two-out, eight-pitch walk. Uh, In the Nats' three-run third, he blasted a two-out, two-run homer to center field of Philly starter Aaron Nola for a 3-0 Nats lead. The homer went a projected 412 feet per stat cast. Soto, in the Nats' three-run fifth, had a bases-loaded two-run single through a drawn-in Phillies infield to right field for a 5-0 Nats lead. Soto, in the bottom of the seventh, had a leadoff single and a stolen base. Juan Soto now has a major league leading 446 on base percentage and a major league leading 106 walks. He has been outstanding this season. Lane Thomas had another good game for the Nats. He went two for five with a solo homer and a single. You know, for all of the good that Lane Thomas has done, he had not homered for the Nats until Thursday. Uh, Thomas in that Nats three-run third, a two-out full count solo homer to center field off Aaron Nola, uh, despite having been down in the count at one point, one two, the homer going a projected 418 feet per stat cast. And this was notable because, like I said, it was Thomas's first homer as an at, but also because Thomas had had a deep flyout to center field to begin the bottom of the first inning. So he barely missed a homer in the bottom of the first. He then connected on a homer in the bottom of the third. And Thomas in the Nats three run fifth had a single on a one-two pitch. So Lane Thomas continues to do well. The sample size is growing. I mean, it's still small, but 59 plate appearances with the Nats. He has a batting average of 314, an on-base percentage of 407, and a slugging percentage of 510, even though he's only hit the one home run. Uh, Josh Bell had a good game on Thursday afternoon. Two for five with a double and an RBI single. Bell in the Nats three-run fifth had an RBI single up the middle for a 6-0 Nats lead. Bell in the bottom of the ninth had a one-out first pitch double. Uh, Josh Bell had a good series. Five for 13 with two doubles, three singles, and two walks. Ryan Zimmerman had another pinch hit on Thursday afternoon. I bring that up because Zim, for so much of this season, was not doing well in the role of pinch hitter. He's actually been better lately, and he had multiple pinch hits in this series. This 7-6 loss to the Phillies at Nationals Park on Thursday afternoon. Zim, a pinch, one-out, first-pitch single in the bottom of the eighth. Uh, Zim in the 7-4 loss to the Phillies at Nationals Park on Monday night, a pinch leadoff double of Phillies closer Jose Alvarado on an 0-2 pitch in the bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, It did end up being a lackluster first series for Kbert Ruiz, Uh, for the Nats at the major league level. He was the Nats starting catcher and number six batter in all three games. He did not do much offensively. Uh, On Thursday, he went 0 for 5 with two strikeouts. K. Barrett in the series, 2 for 14 with just two singles. Um, You know, look, it doesn't mean anything. This is certainly not indicative of anything. I think it's tough for a catcher because here you are, you're a young catcher. You're trying to learn your pitching staff. You're focused, I would think, so much on game calling and, you know, learning how to deal with your starting pitchers. You know, playing catcher is tough enough in terms of the beating your body takes. And so when it comes to the offense, the offense may lag. So I'm not worried about K. Barrett Ruiz, but it is worth noting it did not end up being a stellar 
uh, first series for him at the major league level uh, with the Nats, at least offensively speaking. And uh, also, Alcides Escobar was back as the Nats starting shortstop at number two batter off missing a game due to a left knee contusion, uh, helping the knee clearly too was the Nats having that game on Wednesday night rained out. But Alcides on Thursday afternoon, one for four with a single and a walk. He and the Nats three-run third had a two-out full count single despite having been down to the count at 1.12. And Escobar in the Nats three-run fifth drew a four pitch walk. Now, rosters are expanding in Major League Baseball. Uh, You can go from 26 players on the active roster to 28 players on the active roster. Uh, The Nats, like I said on Wednesday, selected the contract of Alberto Valdonado from AAA Rochester. But the Nats on Wednesday also brought back Alex Avila. Yeah, remember him? Alex Avila on Wednesday was finally reinstated from the 10-day injured list. He had been on that since July 3rd, retroactive to July 2nd with bilateral calf strains, which as you may remember, he suffered in serving as the Nats starting second baseman in a 6-2-5 inning loss to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park on July 1st. Alex Avila ends up missing two months with these bilateral calf strains. Now, everybody believes that he could have been back weeks ago, but the Nats decided to essentially park Avila on the 10-day IL in an effort to play younger catchers, right? Think Riley Adams, think Tres Barrera, and now more recently, think Kbert Ruiz. But because rosters have expanded and because, truthfully, the Nats still don't have many minor leaguers worthy of being summoned to the majors, Alex Avila was actually activated off the 10-day IL on Wednesday. I do not expect him to play much down the stretch of the season, but this is kind of another sneaky indictment of the Nats farm system that in a lost season like this, they still do end up activating Avila. They could have not activated him off the IL and just had him around the team the rest of the season and had him essentially as like an extra coach, you know, like a catcher coach for Kbert Ruiz and Riley Adams, but the Nats did activate Avila uh, on Wednesday. Next up for the Nats, how about this? Five games in four days against the New York Mets at Nationals Park. If if you're sick of seeing the Nats play the Phillies, uh, get ready to get sick of seeing the Nats play the Mets. So game one, Friday night at 7.05. Games two and three will come via a doubleheader on Saturday afternoon and evening, uh, game times of 1.05 and 6.05. Game four, Sunday afternoon at 1.05. And game five, Monday afternoon, Labor Day at 105. Oh, by the way, the Nats now have lost five consecutive games and are 22 games below 500, 55 and 77 on the season. All right, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Jam-packed sports weekend with the college football season truly getting going. Big openers for Maryland and Virginia Tech. No practice for the Washington football team Friday through Sunday, but that doesn't mean that we might not have Washington football team news over the next few days. In fact, take a listen to something that Ron Rivera said during his post-practice press conference on Thursday. We're looking at a couple positions right now, and you guys will hopefully have something shortly to write about as far as that's concerned. But right now, you know, I don't want to talk about it because we're still trying to work through some things. Hmm. A bit of a tease from Don Ron in that post-practice press conference on Thursday. Well, whatever happens over the next few days, I will be doing a show for Monday, Labor Day. So be on the lookout 
for an installment of the pod on Monday. Have a great Labor Day weekend, but I'll talk to you on Monday. For the past maybe 10 days or so, there's been like the tiniest little drama about Ron not publicly naming you a starter, and he did so a couple days ago. Did you ever feel like you needed that confirmation, or has this always felt like your job? No, I, I never I never really needed the uh, the public confirmation. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.